Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, hello and welcome to Scott Seals. So glad that all of you are able to join us today. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're joining us as well. I want to give a shout out today to Glenn Waters. Glenn Waters lives in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania with his wife and children. And Glenn was a, a youth part of the youth ministry here at Scott Seal for many years ago. He's moved in that area. And he let me know that he's been watching every week online. So I want you to welcome him. At the count of three, I want you to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Only count of three, I want you to say, hi, Glenn. One, two, three. Hi, Glenn. Wow. And my cousin Scott, who lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has been watching as well. So on the count of three, I want you to say, hi, cuz. One, two, three. So glad that you all are joining us. And those of you who are watching us online, wherever you're watching from, let us know so we can welcome you. And we look forward to maybe you joining us here one day. I went to Denham Springs High School, and I spent four years there, which is a good thing. That means I graduated on time. And, but when I graduated high school, I was really small. I was 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and I weighed 95 pounds as a senior. So I was, yeah, wow, yeah, I was small. I was so small that I always wanted to play some sports because I always played on sports teams growing up. But I was just too small to do anything. But the one thing I thought I could do is run because most of my life I spent running from bigger guys. And so I joined the track team and I wanted to run. And I didn't know anything about running. I didn't know anything about techniques and neither did our coach. He didn't know anything about track. And I was a runner. So I just said, I just want to run coach. And he said, great, because the only thing I know to do is run you. And so when we got to practice, his philosophy is, I'm just going to run. I'm going to run you. I'm going to run you. You're going to run the 50 yard dash. You're going to run the hundred yard dash. You're going to run the half mile. You're going to run the full 40. You're going to run the mile. Oh, you're going to run the two mile. And for the first half of practice, all we did was run. And then we took a break and then we ran again. And the one thing that we all cherished was the break because the running was so, so brutal. It was, it was hot in Louisiana. You got to remember in those days, they thought that drinking water after you run was bad for you because it would cramp you up. They didn't understand triglycerides and Gatorade. What did they give us? Salt tablets. And so after we finished, we're sitting in a shade, shade, sucking on these big salt tablets, enjoying the break that we had. And there was something wonderful about resting, lying out, and taking a break of some brutal moments. We're in the book of Revelation, and we have been going hard at looking at those judgments that are going to be coming. And we get to chapters 10 and 11, and we get a break. In those two chapters, there seems to be a respite. There seems to be a, oh, wow, let's just take a break. Let's take a breather because it has been really tough. Remember, John in chapters four and five was in the throne room and he was worshiping the Lord Jesus and all creation is worshiping. And then in chapter six, Jesus takes the scroll because he's the only one worthy to open it. And he begins to break the seals and he opens the first six seals of that scroll. 
And we see the four horsemen coming out and we see the persecution of believers and we see all of nature in chaos. And then when he gets to that seventh seal, before he gets there, there's a break and there's a respite. And then when he opens that seventh seal, here comes the seven trumpets. And you remember the first four trumpets are, are together. And in those four, first four trumpets, there's a destruction of all of the ecology, all of our environment. We see that a third of vegetation, gone. A third of marine life and ships, gone. A third of all the fresh water has been poisoned and it is gone. A third of our atmosphere is gone. And then when you get to chapter 9, we see this unleashing of these demonic hordes that are coming out. Satan opens the bottomless pit, and here comes these demons that for five months torture people. And then we see an army of 200 million demons who will take out a third of humanity. And, and when we're dealing with those demons, it, get, it goes from bad to worse. And then when we finished chapter 9, it was like, wow. Man, that's heavy. That's depressing. Man, that's discouraging. I sure hope I don't have to face that. Last week, there was a mom here with her little boy, and he's listening to me preach about all of these things. And when I get to the demon, he turns to his mom. He said, I think I would just drink the poison water. <laughs> I get you. I feel that. And we've been through all that intensity, and John is seeing all of this. And then we come to chapter 10 and we come to chapter 11 and there's a change. There's a difference that happens. There is an interlude that is about to take place because once the, the, the bold judgments come, there will be no interlude. It is going to be ushered in one after the other until the destruction of all things and to the glory of God. But now we're in a resting place. And in this resting place, chapters 10 and 11, there are three testimonies that we get to hear today. We're going to hear a testimony of a mighty angel in chapter 10. In chapters 11, we're going to hear a testimony of two witnesses. And we're going to close with the testimony of the 24 elders. Now remember, this book was written to a group of believers who were going through a very difficult time. They were being persecuted and this book was to encourage them in their walk, to exhort them to stay in the fight and to lead them to worship Jesus. This morning, all three of those are going to be reiterated in chapters 10 and 11. And the practical application of the testimonies that the angel, the witnesses, and the elders are going to give to you and me is going to be incredible. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to begin in chapter 10. We're just going to unfold verse by verse, and we're going to look at the testimony of the angel and give two specific testimonies that he gives. And in chapter 11, we're going to un just do the same thing and find a testimony from the witnesses and a testimony from the elders. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true, it's reliable, and we can depend on every word you say. Bless us this morning. Encourage our hearts. Challenge us to stay in the fight and lead us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the testimony of the angel. And here's a mighty angel that shows up. John is now back up in heaven and he's looking at all of these things that are taking place. And in chapter 10, verse one, here's what we'd see. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, 
wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, some people will say this is Jesus, but it's not. It says another ain't mighty angel. The key word here is another, which means one of the same kind. Jesus is unlike any angel. They're created beings. He is not. So John sees this mighty angel and he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, this is the same scroll, but this is just a miniature version of the same scroll. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, here's the picture. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. All the other judgments were just about a third of the earth. They were in special locales. This is going to be all over the world. And when he sets his foot down, you ever heard the saying, I'm, the saying, I'm putting my foot down? This is the authority of God that says, I'm putting my foot down. All of these things are going to be coming to a reality and to an end. And then when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, we don't know why John was told not to write it down. It could be that they were incredibly terrifying and we didn't need to know it. Somebody asked me, what do you think it said? I said, I don't know. He didn't write it down and neither do you. And we should never speculate about that. He goes on. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. It is about to happen. And he swore by the name of God that all of these judgments and the culmination of what God has planned is about to come to an end. Then he goes on. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. John, it's about to happen. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So he says, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Can you imagine, John? I wonder how he did that. This is this magnificent angel, a mighty angel. He says, you go. And he says, so I went and I told him to give me the scroll. How did he do that? Come on. Come on, right now, give it to me. I doubt he did it that way. I mean, this is a mighty angel. And so what we see, and he says to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And he goes on. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten, eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Listen carefully. He takes the scroll and he eats it. This is reminiscent of Jeremiah who takes the word of God and eats it. Or reminiscent of Ezekiel who takes a scroll and eats it. And John eats it and it says, it is sweet to my mouth but bitter to my stomach. And many people mean, what does that mean? What does that mean, that it's sweet to your mouth, but it's bitter to your stomach? Many people have taken many positions on this, and certainly they're all true and have some validity to it. The Word of God is to be consumed by every child of God. We are to consume the Word of God. It is to be um, embodied into our life. 
The Word of God is to be internalized into our souls. We're not simply just to know the Word of God. The Word of God must move from our head to our heart to our hands, that it becomes particularly powerful in the lives of people. Now, that certainly is true. Now, the word is sweet and bitter in the sense that the word of God can be sweet to me. Great times of comfort, great truth, great instruction. But it can be bitter, too, because sometimes the word of God cuts. Sometimes the word of God convicts. Sometimes the word of God challenges. While all those are true, that's not the meaning here. The picture here is this. There's a sweetness and there's a sourness that should be part of every believer's life. The sweetness that John knew of was being in the glories of heaven and to be in the presence of Almighty God and to know that that is our future. But the bitterness for John is this, that there are those who are going to be under the judgment of God. Look how he ends this. As he's in the presence of God, he's taking a break and the thing that's bitter to his soul is that you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John, it's not over yet. You still got a testimony to give to the world and there's a judgment coming. And what is the angel saying to us in this passage? What can we learn from it? I think there are two things that we could take from this. Number one, we are to freely rejoice that God's kingdom is coming. As children of God, we should freely rejoice that there's a day when we're going to be in eternity with Jesus Christ. Amen? We should rejoice in that. We should rejoice that our sins are forgiven and that we're made right with God. We should rejoice that the Lord Jesus is coming back and he's going to get his bride and we're going to be with him forever. We should rejoice that we're going to be in a place where there's no sin, there's no temptation, there's no brokenness, there's no rebellion. We should rejoice that because there'll be no disease, there will be no sickness, there will be no guilt, there will be no shame, there will be no death. We should rejoice because one day, brothers and sisters, together, we are going to be sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb of the Son of God and enjoying His presence forever. We should be free to rejoice in that. That's the sweetness of the promise of God. And now, and as we're doing that, there's a bitter part too. We should fervently pray for those who are under God's judgment. Listen carefully. While we pray, Jesus, come back. There are others who don't know Jesus that will fall under his wrath. And there should be a bitter sweetness to our lives. There should be the sweetness that, rea that the reality is, yes, those who are believers are going to heaven. But those who are not believers are going to fall under the judgment of Almighty God. And it should do something to my soul that grieves my own heart. Some of you know that you have children that if Jesus came back today, they'd be in a separation from God for all of eternity. Some of you have neighbors, some of you have co-workers, some of you have spouses. And it should drive us to a place of fervently praying. Why should we fervently pray? Let me give you three reasons. The battle is fierce. There's a spiritual warfare that's going on. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers that they may not see the glory of the gospel. Do you realize that? That there are people all around you who cannot see the glory of the gospel because the God of this world keeps them blinded. And we should pray. Secondly, 
our prayers are effective. When we pray, our prayers go up and heaven comes down. When we pray, we can ask God to open the eyes of their hearts. And lastly, we pray because our God is faithful. He is faithful. God is faithful to demonstrate his power. God is faithful to vindicate his own children. God is faithful to extend mercy. God is faithful to bring out justice and righteousness. Here's what I was so convicted about this week. You want to know the test of whether or not you really love lost people? Is do you pray for them? No, really. Do you pray for them? I'm not talking about, oh, Lord, help all the lost. No, that's a generic prayer that has no power to it. Do you pray for people specifically and by name and call them out before the Lord and ask that God would open their eyes that they would see the power of the gospel? Do you pray by name that God would demonstrate his mercy and his kindness to them and draw them to himself? Do we really pray for those who are headed for hell? And a conviction that really just came upon my own heart is, no, I don't. I don't. And yet there should be that bitter sweetness, the sweetness of knowing I'm secure in Christ. I know where I'm going, but I know where she's going too. I'm not pointing to you, by the way. <laughs> I don't even know you. They needed a lightness there, but the reality is this. Here's what we need to understand when it comes the difference between this world and Christians and this world and the loss. Listen to this. This world is the closest thing to hell a Christian will ever experience. Isn't that true? This is the closest thing to hell that a believer will ever experience. No matter how bad it gets here, it won't compare to what hell is going to be like, and we only have heaven before us. But the opposite is true as unbelievers. This world is the closest thing to heaven a lost person will ever experience. This is as good as it gets for a person who doesn't know Jesus. And listen to me, those of you watching online, those of you who are listening today, and if you're not a child of God, this is as good as it gets. You might as well buy Joel Osteen's book, my best life now because this is all. This is all. Because it won't get any better. But in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have an answer. So here's the testimony. Rejoice, believer, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Freely rejoice, but fervently pray for the people who will be left behind when the Lord comes. The testimony of the angel is something that can resonate and should resonate with every one of us. But let me give you the second testimony, the testimony of the two witnesses. In chapter 11, which is one of the most difficult chapters to interpret because so many people have their own interpretations on what certain things mean. For example, it begins with the interpretation of the temple that is going to be rebuilt and also the two witnesses. People have two different positions when it comes to those two different things. For example, when it comes to the temple, there are those who believe that there is going to be a literal new temple that will be built in Jerusalem. 
which is interesting because the Dome of the Rock is there now. But they have done some study, and some people have said that the Dome of the Rock actually would be where the court of the Gentiles is. And so if the Jews built a new temple, they could build it just north of that. And in this passage, we see that they're built the temple without the court of the Gentiles, which is already there. So there are many people who say, yeah, there's going to be a physical new temple that is going to be built, and many Jews are going to come to faith in Christ. Others say, no, that's just symbolic of all the people of God. And it's just symbolic of that these are, uh, this is just a picture of what God is going to do through his people. Now, when you get to the two witnesses, you also have two different positions. Some will say that they are specifically two people, that they're real. They are two witnesses that are going to show up on the scene and they're going to have incredible power. Many people think that, well, it's going to be Moses and it's going to be Elijah. Why? Because Moses and Elijah had appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John witnessed this. Some people say it's going to be Zerubbabel and maybe Joshua. People come up with all kinds of names about who it can be, and they speculate on that. And so the thing is this, regardless of whether you believe symbolically or literally about these things, the one thing that we see clearly taught through the witnesses And this whole thing is that we are to fearlessly proclaim God's gospel to the world. We are to be fearless about proclaiming the gospel. And and we are to be fearless about preaching the good news. Now, I want you to know that in chapters 10 and 11, we see constantly the word prophesy or prophecy or prophet. That is a major call of the church today that we are to be involved in proclaiming. Now, the word prophecy can be translated as two things. It can be foretelling or it can be forthtelling. The apostle John is foretelling events that are going to come. But when the witnesses come, they're going to be forthtelling the truth of God's word on earth to culture about the judgments. And so we're not called to foretell the future as believers. We're called to foretell the truth of God's word to a culture that desperately needs it. Now, what we don't see in chapter 11 is exactly what these witnesses preached on. We never hear specifically what they had to say, but they're witnesses. So it means they're witnesses to the gospel, they're witnesses to the Lord Jesus, they're witnesses to the truth of humanity and witnesses to the redemption of mankind. And so what do they do? They fearlessly preach the gospel. Why do they do it so fearlessly? Because when we look at this passage, I want to show you six reasons why they did it and you and I can be fearless when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Number one, our lives are secure. We can be fearless because our lives are secure. Verse 1, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. He is to measure everything, but you'll notice there are no measurements given specifically. He's not only measuring the temple, he's measuring the altar, but he's measuring people. Let me give you what the picture is here. The picture is like sending a surveyor out. And when a surveyor goes to look at a plot of land, he's measuring the bounties for the protection of ownership and protection. And so what he's saying here is that you and I, when we proclaim the gospel, we're secure. 
because we belong to God and God is going to carry out the work that he has for us as he provides ownership and security to us. So we can be fearless in that. But the second thing we need to see is this, our suffering is expected. Just because we're secure doesn't mean we won't suffer in telling the gospel. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. All of this is from the prophecy of Daniel on. You can look it up and study that later. But here's the purpose of this, is that we're going to suffer. There are going to be difficult times when we speak the truth of the gospel. Our suffering is expected. It says in the scriptures that Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So it doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us. But the third thing is our task is prophetic. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That means... They've been given a task, and that task is to proclaim the good news. The truth is, that's been the task that has been given to you and me. That's the task that has been given to the church of Jesus Christ. And no matter how difficult the days, we are to continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We're living in some crazy days, aren't we? And I'm told over and over again by people who are coming from other churches that the reason they're coming here is because we're preaching the truth of the gospel. It blows my mind that other churches are not. What else is there for us to preach? That's our task. And we're called to go out and to proclaim the truth. And I want you to know this. When things get really tough, that's when the gospel becomes really powerful. And so we have been given a task. Our power is invincible. Our power is invincible. Listen to the power that these witnesses have. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Boy, you want these two guys on your evangelistic team. I remember when I was in seminary, we had to go out and do this thing called CWT, Continue Witnessing Training. And we had to go through all the difficult places of Louisiana uh, in New Orleans. And so one of the places that we were sent to was Desire Housing Projects. The police officers don't even go in there. And we had to go in teams of three. So I picked the two biggest guys on, in the class. One was six foot six, one was six foot seven. And I'm right between them. Man, I was fearless. <laughs> the thing is this, we can be fearless because when we have the work of God in us, we're invincible. Look at their power. They have the power to shut the, shut the sky, that, rain, uh, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. See, here's the reality. When we're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're invincible. Now, we might not be able to shut down the sky. We might not be able to turn water into, blind, to, to water into blood. But the thing is this, we are absolutely invincible. Our light is unquenchable. Our souls are untouchable. The power of the Holy Spirit is invincible until God is finished 
with us. So we can fearlessly proclaim. Here's the fifth thing. Our death is temporary. Our death is temporary. Now you're saying, well, we're invincible. Now you're talking about death. Yeah, there's going to be a day where every one of us is going to die unless the Lord Jesus comes before that. But it's temporary when we do. Notice what he says. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist. We've seen him in chapter 6 on the white horse. We're going to see him in chapter 13 and chapter 17 beginning next week. And he's going to be mentioned 35 other times in the book of Revelation. But the beast who is supernaturally empowered by Satan himself is a person who is a world leader that will deceive many. When he rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, speaking about Jerusalem. And those who dwell on the earth, these are the people who not just live on the earth, but they live for the earth, remember, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The only time that we see people in the book of Revelation rejoicing is here. And the only time the people of the earth rejoice in the whole book of Revelation is when they have killed the witnesses of God. And so much so that they have this twisted, perverted Christmas where they're giving one another presents and celebrating that these two witnesses that tormented us are dead. I want you to know something. That's how the world feels about witnesses of Jesus Christ. We're living in a culture today where we already see that. The world ridicules Christianity. The world says, what's the point in being a Christian? There's no good cause. Think about this. If you speak negatively about the LGBTQ+, then you're canceled. If you speak negatively about Black Lives Matter, then you're canceled. If you speak negatively about critical race theory, then you're canceled. If you speak negatively about abortion or gay rights, you're canceled. But you could say anything you want about Christianity and Christians, and it goes under the radar, and there's no concern about it. Christians are dying all over the world, and you're not hearing the reports of outrage on the news. Christians are called domestic terrorists in our country today. And you're beginning to see that there's little concern. And the world has this to say to Christians that really you're not a great concern or significant thing in our culture. And we're seeing that grow more and more and more. And the world will say it is pointless and useless to be a Christian because that's superstition and religious antiquity thought. And we're seeing it more and more. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, which is equivalent about to the time that Jesus was in the tomb, breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. I want you to listen to this carefully. The point here 
is something that we know is certainty. Our resurrection is certain. Our resurrection is certain in Jesus Christ. Now, some people use this passage to say that there's going to be a mid-trib rapture of the people of God. Remember, some people hold that there's a pre-trib rapture and that Jesus will come back and get his church and they're going to be raptured in heaven for seven years and they'll come back with him at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's pre-trib. Many people use this as an illustration of, no, it's going to be mid-trib. We're in the middle of the tribulation at this point. And many scholars say that at this point, God cover, collects his people, and then there's the part of the resurrection. Because God is not going to allow his people to go through wrath because they're not destined for wrath. And then there's some people that say, no, we go to the end of that. But here's the point. Listen carefully. No matter what position you hold, the truth is this. Our resurrection is certain. There's going to be a day and a time where the reality is that we're going to receive new bodies. There's a day and a time where we're going to be resurrected. There's a day and a time where we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And it matters not what the world does to us. It matters not what the world says. It matters not what our culture tries to cancel us out. The reality is you can kill my body, but there's going to be a day when this body be resurrected and I'm going to be living with Jesus for all of eternity. There's the certainty. And these witnesses are telling us, listen, be fearless in proclaiming the gospel. Stay in the fight. Don't let the world scare you. Don't be concerned about the, what the world has to offer. Don't be concerned that they would ridicule you and reject you. Because you are sealed. And nothing will ever change that. The testimony of the angel tells us that we can freely praise, freely rejoice, but fervently pray. The testimony of the witnesses that we are to fearlessly proclaim the truth of God's word. But here's the last one. The testimony of the elders. What is the testimony of the elders? Very simple. Forever praise the reigning king. Now John sees the 24 elders around the throne and they are forever praising the raising the reigning king. We are to constantly praise him. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And in this next verse that I read, I want you to notice that there's one little thing that's different. Every time we read this verse before, it was put a little bit differently. But now we read this, something is missing. Let's see if you can detect it. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Do you see what's missing? The pattern has always been this. Who is and who was and who is to come. But when we stand in the presence of heaven, it will never come from our lips again who is and who was and who is to come because he is here and we are with him. From that point on, it's going to be who is and who was and who is the reigning king. 
the one who has accomplished everything that he said he would do. And we see that in the next verse, it's all in the past tense. He says, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the deeds, the, the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. It's done. Witnessing is over. Now there's only worship. And the elders are telling us, listen, there's coming a day where you will forever praise him. You will forever sing his praises. And all of the plan of Almighty God from eternity past to eternity future now is sealed and is accomplished. And those who are his will be with him forever. The testimonies are encouraging to us. Freely rejoice that God's kingdom is coming. Fervently pray for the lost. Fearlessly proclaim the gospel. And forever praise the reigning king. Believers, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. This is a word of encouragement for you and me. We see what we have in Christ. We are encouraged for what God is going to do. But we hear the challenge to stay in the fight. Don't give up. Continue to press on and be fearless in what God has called us to do. And as we walk with that fearless heart, we know that that will generate a forever worship of him. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is as good as it gets for you today. This is it. But the Lord Jesus has so much more. He's given his life for you. He's died on the cross on your behalf. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. And he is personally inviting you to be part of the party, to be in his family. And the decision is yours. You know, the greatest question in the Bible that was asked was asked by Pilate. And you know what he said? What shall I do with this Christ? And God is asking you today, what will you do with this Christ? You can surrender your life right now to him and know that you will be forever secure in him. I wonder if you would do that today. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads, close your eyes. And maybe God's spoken to your heart today and you want to surrender you could pray this prayer, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus is your son and he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead and he is alive today. And right now, I surrender my life to you. I give you all the brokenness, the emptiness, the struggles. And I ask you, to forgive me of every sin and that you would come and you would live in me and I would forever be yours. I turn from my sin and I turn to you right now. 
I commit my life to you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Thank you that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.